Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my co-host. My name is Chris Huddleston. And today, we are both very excited to be talking to you about a classic film from our childhood, Die Hard. It's Chris. This is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! ...he'll never forget. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal! This Christmas... Time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells and deck the halls oh, with bows of Holy! Bruce Willis. We to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. <laughs> Alan Rickman. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, Together in the greatest Christmas story ever told. I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. <laughs> Hans, <laughs> Booby, eat it, Harvey. Yeah! Holy shit. I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Yeah! Merry Christmas. Die Hard. This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. <laughs> Do you have a synopsis for us, Mr. Huddleston? I do. So Die Hard is a 1988 film. Uh, the synopsis from IMDb, an NYPD officer tries to save his wife and several others taken hostage by German terrorists during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. And it was directed by John McTiernan. It stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, Reginald Van Johnson, and a whole host of other people. So both of us have seen this, I imagine, several times, if not many times. Yeah. So what do you think about, well, let's say, how long had it been since you had watched Die Hard? And what did you think revisiting it? It has been several years since I've seen it. I was happy to revisit it. Um, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in this movie for me, because I remember when it came out uh, in 1988, I just thought, Oh man, this is amazing. You know, this movie is amazing. And now in 2022 there are there are some things that feel quite dated. Um the way they talk about the computers and in 88 the Japanese competition with America's economy was a thing. Um you know, race relations were a little still I mean, they're still fraught, but at the time you know, there was a certain way that race got sort of handled on screen. So I think it stands up. I enjoyed it enormously watching it again. And there was some stuff that I had forgotten about. Of course, Alan Rickman, rest in peace, one of the greats. Um, and certainly one of my all-time favorite on-screen villains. Uh, I thought his Hans Gruber was just delicious to watch. Just absolutely fun and gave Bruce Willis... A run for his money in terms of stealing the film um what about you yeah so uh, same for me i mean a classic of our childhood i can remember being in the theater and seeing the poster for this and thinking 
wow i really and for some reason i never saw it in the theater i saw it on hbo or or home video or something like that afterwards for whatever reason but yeah you know you had um bruce willis who i was a big fan of bruce willis from uh moonlighting and you know he did some comedies and things like that before and this is what propelled him into you know superstardom uh alan rickman i i looked up his filmography this was his first american this was his first film uh that wasn't like a tv movie or a bbc production or something like that and propelled him into superstardom as well as as you know played a villain a lot and you know of course he famously was in the harry potter movies um and you know he didn't have a lot of leading man roles in his career but he but you know he was a great villain um one of the things that I really noticed, so we've talked about, or I definitely have talked about this movie a lot on the show, because this is kind of a benchmark for me for action films. Mm -hmm. And I often compare this to what's going on with action films today. And one of the things that it, it had been several years since I'd seen it as well. And one of the things that really stood out to me is, is it, it is an action movie but it's almost just as much a suspense film. You know, much of this film, I'd say maybe the majority of it, is Bruce Willis hiding and just trying to outsmart these guys as opposed to it being just action set piece after action set piece, you know? Yeah. Um, and another thing that I noticed that I think is really great about this, a lot of times when we will talk about blockbuster films today, that we're a bit let down by is, you know, we'll say this in a technical standpoint, they're really great. You know, the cinematography is good and the lighting and the stunts and all of that are really excellent. They look good, but they look good. But oftentimes the script is where things kind of fall apart. And in this, there are some little touches, like there's a scene where so Bonnie Bedelia is Bruce Willis's wife. And she is, she lives in LA, he's in New York, they're estranged. He's going there to see her for Christmas. And, uh, you know, she works in this big office building. And uh, Hans Gruber, the Alan Rickman character, kills the president of the company. And now she's second in line. And she goes in, she requests to meet with Hans Gruber. And she goes in and she says that there's a pregnant woman and we need a couch for her. And he says, okay. And she also says, things are going to start getting messy unless you start allowing us to go to the bathrooms. And he says, okay, done. And then he turns around and kind of looks at pictures on the desk. It's her office, the desk behind him. And he says that the, the president of the company did a really great job hiring people. You know, she, he's, she's kind of gained his respect a little bit. And when he turns around, she's gone. And it's just this little glimpse of, a, you know, that her eyes flicker. Yeah. Flicker past she's a, and he tracks it because previously she was frustrated with Bruce Willis, John McClane. Mm -hmm. And there was a family picture of him and her and their child or children. And she had flipped it down. Right. So it's literally right. He's sitting in her chair. It's literally right behind her. Her eyes just kind of flicker to it. Like, does he know, has he put together that John McClane is 
She doesn't want him to find out that she's related to this mystery guy that's causing all the trouble. Mm-hmm. But he clocks that little flicker of the eye. And after she's gone, it, either right after she's gone or in another scene, he lifts it up and he puts two and two together. I think it is later because he's met John McClane by this point. So he knows what he looks like. Yeah. And then realizes he has some leverage because he's actually got his wife. <laughs> yeah. Hostages. But there's just some little subtle things like that. You know, it shows sort of as he's talking, you know, you get this feeling that he has a little bit of respect for her yes. after this kind of interaction. So, it, you know, it gives this little glimpse of humanity into this bad guy, you know, just a very, you know, it's like a 30 second scene or something. There's a scene later, they they really present other than Al, this police officer that that sort of befriends Bruce Willis and he's communicating with him via walkie talkie. All of the other police are pretty incompetent as well as the FBI when the FBI comes in. And there's a scene with, so there's these two FBI guys come in, they're partners and they're kind of hot shots, especially, especially one of them. And they have this, they're going to Johnson and Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. There's a great scene where he's on the, Phone or and he says, "No, the other, the other. I'm the other Johnson." But so they're up in a helicopter. They're going to, uh, uh, it's you know, they're uh, Hans Gruber has said they're going to release the hostages, and it's actually a trap. They're going to blow up the roof and all this kind of stuff. But they're in the helicopter, and the the one FBI guy says to the other one, he says, eh, we're probably going to have only about twenty to twenty five percent." of the uh, hostages killed. I'm I'm okay with that. How about you? And the guy just laughs. So, you know, that's this little, like, kind of dig, you know, at, the, at the, their incompetence or badness or whatever. And then the guy says, this is just like being in Saigon, am I right? And the guy goes, I was in junior high, dickhead. You know, yeah. and there's these just little minor characters. Yeah. But, you know, I just, there were little flourishes like that that really stood out to me that this was a well-crafted script. You know, that we don't, I don't know that we get so much in action movies now. And, you know, in fairness, a lot of action movies then. I mean, this is a, I would say this and then the Indiana Jones movies, which are more action, action adventure, whereas this is kind of action thriller, but are, you know, sort of the high watermark as action for me. Yeah. Well, there's such great character development across the board. And I want to yeah. talk, I want to stick with the FBI agents for a second because on paper, this movie really again and again glorifies the good guy with a gun, right? The lone cop, the sort of underdog, right? He the 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 guy who ends up escalating is just a beat cop that gets sent to check it out and uh, Bruce Willis ends up throwing a, one of the terrorists that he's uh, killed out of the window and out of the hood of the guy's car, and that gets his attention. And um, from there, people realize something's going on at, in the building. But he has a, a radio that he's stolen from one of the guys, so he can communicate with the cop on the police band, uh, and they become friends uh, throughout this. But Again and again, we see it. It's like the cop on the street gets him, believes him, and understands where he's coming from. Whereas everybody else up the chain consistently makes the wrong, stupid, inaccurate, uh, you know, uh, unobservant assumption. 
So we see the press show up and the press is painted like a bunch of disgusting, you know, like piranha like ambulance chaser kind of. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're they're painted in a very poor light, although it is a fantastic performance this this movie is full of faces you'll remember from the 80s yeah that actor was often played william atherton is his name often played that kind of slimy yes in my favorite role he's in ghostbusters wasn't he in ghostbusters wasn't he a bad guy in ghostbusters yeah i think he was yes i I believe he was um but uh i am gonna miss him Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh it, yeah but he was my favorite role was in uh real genius where he was the professor yeah. to steal the guy's idea yeah yeah um, wow we should guy, do we should do real yeah, we genius, do real genius. Yes. i've not seen that in a long time we gotta, i don't think I we've don't, ever done a my that, that, doesn't stand up but we got to do it that's the val kilmer one right yeah. yeah i don't know if we've ever have we ever done a val kilmer movie i don't think we have wow how did we not have, we haven't done a Val Are you sure there has to have been a Val Kilmer? I don't think so. I well, don't know. We'll, we'll have to go back and look, but but I know we haven't done Real Genius. I mean, we haven't done uh, Weird Science either, and that's another 80s classic. Weird Science would be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm a little afraid these movies don't stand up, and that's kind of part of why i have not seen i bet i haven't seen real genius since i was a kid i know i have seen in the last like 10 years i've seen weird science yeah and you know it, it's definitely there's some problematic stuff with it but i, I don't know about about real genius yeah. but yeah so anyway um the other guy you remember is the the actor who played the principal in in the breakfast club he is the sort of he's the superior of the beat cop right he's the head of chief of police or something yeah that's in charge before the feds show up, but he's just as thick-headed and obtuse as the the feds are. And the, and the feds show up, and they're just all swagger, and they're doing it by the book. And they're, they're a couple of cavalier, you know. They think they're badasses because they're, mm-hmm. but they're not paying attention, right? And that's what the beat cop keeps trying to tell them. It's like, no, you're not. Listen to what he's saying. You know, he's he's telling you what's going on in there and what he needs. They're like, all right, Junior, we got it from here. And it's loaded with that. So we see the press is getting in the way of the good guy with the gun. We see the the brass is getting in the way of the good guy with the gun. We're seeing the feds, right? So the feds just get people killed. The brass just get in the way. The press just, you know, tip the hand to the the, the, the press end up helping the terrorist. And I think that's that's interesting because you don't that's sort of out of vogue today or there's a certain kind of movie i feel like clint eastwood makes movies in which the good guy with the gun is still this kind of unassailable hero even though clint eastwood does tend to try and make that character more complicated in his later films the films that he directs uh you know at the end of the day things would go very would would go worse if there wasn't a good guy with a gun and you know it's things are so politicized now and i'm not advocating for good guys with guns it's just such a staple of movies my entire life growing up and i didn't even think about it all the way up through the 80s and even into the 90s because that was just such a central trope of film but now this idea of oh what's you know, now that we have such horrific mass shootings going on on, on like a daily basis, 
the the NRA's assertion of the only thing that'll stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun feels absolutely absurd, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and it's interesting to see a film that I enjoy, that I think follows a great template. I mean, I think this film is great because it's a good script. The characters are well-developed and well-written. The performances are are terrific. The directing is terrific. The pace is, is dynamic. Like, it hits all the marks of an entertaining, rewatchable movie. It's long, too. It's over two hours long. It doesn't feel long watching it. But uh, so so uh, I just I just it really struck me in 2022 watching this being like, oh, this is. um, This is really this is really, uh, uh, you know, celebrating the. The man in blue, right? He's literally a New York City cop. Yeah, I definitely thought about that a lot watching this that you there there's even a so there's a couple of things to go along with what you touched on. Well, three things really. So one, you you know, we didn't have the I don't know when really the thing started. It was this was was it probably the 90s when the when the the going postal became a you know because we had this kind of string of postal workers uh and and that was more they would lose their job and then they'd go in and shoot their boss or their co-workers or whatever so you didn't feel like oh you know i'm not safe anywhere because a postal worker is going to kill me unless maybe you worked at a post office you know so we we had i think that was in the 90s when we had kind of the of string of those but we didn't grow up with school shootings and mass shootings. And, you know, that was kind of more after we were out of school. So you had that aspect that wasn't really a thing in the eighties. You also, there is a, uh, there's a little interaction that they have where uh, it was like Al gets assigned to, you know, he's been sort of demoted and Al's uh, the guy in the street. yeah, Al is the, is the cop. Um, and he says to, to John McClane, you know, John McClane says, what did you do? Run over your boss's, uh, feet with your car or something like that. And he's like, no, I shot a kid. Um, and you are, you know, we like him and you are sympathetic to that. Well, he you- paints it, he paints it in a very sympathetic way and the direction and the performance underline that yeah. he didn't get demoted. He chose to step back because he said, I just never have felt like I could draw a gun on someone again. Right. right? Because he, it was dark. The kid had a ray gun looked real enough, you know, and it just went, things got out of control and it, he doesn't get super deep into it, but you get the, you get the sense that it was a clean shooting. It was a, a horrible mistake. Anyone could have made, and this is a good guy and it was terrible tragedy. And he's, he's punishing himself too much for this innocent mistake. Right. That's kind yeah. of the vibe. You're exactly. You're supposed to be 100% on board with him and feel bad for him, right? And it is, you know, cops are the good guys and this was just a mistake. Right. And and now it, but it's a little bit like, you know, it was dark and the the he had a gun looked real enough, you know. And, and I'm sure at the time audience Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure audiences at the time and us as teenagers at the time it probably played to us the way it was supposed to. 
wow, this would be, imagine if you were in that situation, how terrible that would be, you know, and there's nothing, it's not meant to be political in any way. There's no, no there's no mention of what race the kid was or anything like that. It was just a horrible mistake. Right. But now through 2022, the, the cop himself is African-American. Yeah. And now with 2022 eyes, we have like seemingly weekly, there's an incident where a cop Loaded. That's kills right. somebody, you know, so yeah, that's in her. And again, they were not trying to paint this in any way because nope. that just wasn't really a thing that we heard about in 1998 was, you know, a cop shooting. And, and probably in 1988, we would have thought, oh, if a cop shot somebody, either they were a bad guy and they should have been shot or must have been a, a reason. You know, yeah, it must have been a reason. But uh, the follow through of that, of course, is at the at the finale of the of the movie. He redeems himself. And when not Gruber, but the sort of chief henchman, right, does the obligatory come back from the dead and rears up in a dangerous way. Uh, McLean is already embracing his wife and maybe daughter. I don't know. <laughs> Somehow she's there, too, or. I don't know, but I don't know. they're having a family moment and he is vulnerable. And so this guy rears up to kill him and blam, he gets a bullet in his head and it is the beat cop who never could drop. Right. So what mm -hmm. we see is this full circle thing is like, oh, I shot a kid and I just don't. It's painted like a weakness. I just don't have the you know, I can't do my job, basically, mm -hmm. which is draw my gun on people. And at the end, oh, he's back, baby, right? And this is what good guys with guns are supposed to do. They're supposed to shoot the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're watching the movie, it all fits beautifully. Like the story that this movie is telling, it's not about that. It's not about politics. Mm -hmm. This is a very bad guy who is about to kill our hero and maybe our hero's wife and maybe some other people. He has an automatic weapon. So we're glad that the cop shoots him, but I, I just there. I, I guess my point is there are a number of times, and I keep interrupting you. But no, no, no. You were gonna say there's three things, but there's a number of times throughout where this is sort of looped back upon and underlined, and it doesn't feel watching the movie, or it certainly didn't to me in the '80s, and until recently, until this viewing, it doesn't feel to me like there's any kind of an agenda to this movie. It's just mm. trying to be a well-told, entertaining story about, you know, a real hero who, against crazy odds, you know, prevails and saves the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, and it isn't until watching it this time that I see some of these things. And I'm like, wow, that's really, oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, they also do the other thing that I don't know if, it, if I actually numbered these properly or not. I don't know if this is a third thing or not. But the other thing that ties into a lot of that is and it's just a couple of minor throwaway lines here and there. But there's also the the 80s trope of the not just that the uh, that the cop has to act on his own. He has to act outside of the system because the system is so corrupt to protect bad guys. He has a line or two there. There's something said about him not following the rules or something like that. And he's like, yeah, that's what my boss keeps telling me, you know. So every 80s action, you know, every 80s movie that is about cops, it's always the system 
is, you know, the bleeding hearts have created this system where we can't actually stop crime. And the only way is to work outside of that and to be a rogue guy. And again, that's not what this movie is about, but there's a couple of little references to that, that, that every movie from this era had in it. You know, it is, I mean, it is interesting because we, and you know, okay, we were kids. Did we just have a more simplistic view of the world or are things presented differently today? But we, from all of our entertainment, we never, the cop was always the good guy. There was never, we never had any representation of, of cops being fallible in any way. And, or if you we know, did, if we did, they were very, very bad, like yeah. bad lieutenant or, yes. um, the professional was it where Gary Oldman was like the insane cop. I mean, he was just absolutely chewing the furniture in that one. So it's like we, you would occasionally see a bad cop, but it was supposed to be horrifying. Like, and it's like, Oh, that guy's terrible. Murders kids. Right. You know, but it would never be a cop kills somebody who is innocent and unarmed, you know, And, and we would never have seen that represented you know or but again we, this is a popcorn movie so it's not it's not about that but yeah it, it is definitely interesting to look at how they were represented back then versus you did see crooked cops today. sometimes like in gangster movies cops on the take we that's yes. a character trope that we would see from time to time but we mm-hmm. always were supposed to feel disgust and contempt for that character like right. you traitor right yeah yeah exactly um what else? I mean, there's just so much to talk. I think Bonnie Bedelia did a great job. I, you know, they they touch on this. So, so the the company she works for is a Japanese corporation that's clearly doing very well. At the Christmas party, he says we just had our best year ever. You know, thank you everybody, and they all cheer. And she's like, this is a big job for her. She's like second in command to the sort of I don't know if he's the CEO of the company, but he's certainly the head of the New York office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get the kind of it doesn't feel obligatory, but it felt it feels like they needed to get a scene in there, scenes worth of dialogue in there where the New York cop, you know, puts his finger on the pulse of what people were thinking at the time. Right. He says something about. um, Some reference to the, the guy is Japanese. And he his response is, well, hey, you know, it didn't work out at Pearl Harbor, so we got you with videotapes or what, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And and they just, it's not, doesn't beat it over the head. All the all the criminals are international. I mean, it, Hans Gruber is German, and he seems to have a number of German guys with him. But he's got, it's an, there's an Italian guy, and it, it just feels like it's an international crew of, of thieves. Um. So it's not, you know, and it it doesn't, his chauffeur who, who confesses to be the first time he's driving is a black guy and he says his name is Argyle and Bruce Willis kind of raises an eyebrow because I guess in 1988, the joke is black people have weird names or... I guess, yeah. I don't know, maybe just Argyle's a weird name, but that's not how it reads to me. There's a racial thing, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, the movie does not feel racist and Bruce Willis does not feel racist. I think what they were trying to do there is be like, you know, he's a New York cop. He's seen it all, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't 
shy away from speaking from his gut. But it's also, so he gets to the Christmas party and everybody's, you know, everybody's drunk at the Christmas party and a guy comes up to him and kisses him on the cheek and he's like, whoa. And he's like, California. Yeah. (laughs) It's like California. It's things are weird in California, you know, but you know, but so all of this stuff is sort of setting up who this character is. Although I don't feel like that that stuff is sort of seasoning. That stuff doesn't really seem to like once the action gets rolling, it's much more about style and, you know, the determination to prevail than it is about other, you know, issues like that. Um, He uh, he does have an argument with his wife that feels like the same old argument and Mm -hmm gets you know gets patriarchal on her you know basically like oh you know you just so you just fly out here to do the thing and you take my kids and and you know she's like you don't you don't you know you can't conceive of me being successful basically like that's the problem the problem is that you have a very specific idea of what your wife is supposed to be Mm -hmm. and i don't I don't see myself that way, you know? So I think that that takes some of that other stuff that could be a little off-putting, although Bruce Willis is so charming, I think it's fine. He, he, He delivers that other stuff very lightly. And nobody else has taken umbrage at it. The other characters aren't directed to be like, this is just banter. Mm -hmm. And when we have that one little scene that anchors the relationship with Bonnie Bedelia, uh, who does some wonderful acting where she doesn't have lines, like the camera lingers on her and she just, you see her face and her eyes really telling a story, a number of scenes in this movie that I think are just wonderful. Um, but I think that scene with, I think that scene with, um, with his estranged wife lets us know that this guy is imperfect. This guy has some growing to do mm-hmm. and really he's kind of being the rigid one here yeah and i also it's a really yeah and it's and he you know admits as much later that you know she's the best thing that ever happened to him you know later he has an evolution where he's like you know now that i've almost died a bunch of times i i you know i realize that i've been short short sighted and And I think that scene of them arguing is, I think that's another example of good script writing in this or screenwriting because it, it it doesn't tell us everything. We know there are problems between them, but it sketches things out enough for us to, to have, you know, an idea that they have problems and that's why she's, she's there and he's, you know, he's in New York and all of that without having to, explicitly spell everything out like show a you know a flashback of them fighting about some specific thing or something you know and it's very very uh economical yeah not a long scene they don't spend a long time in it she gets called in to say a few words and he's left in the room you know still like literally their argument gets interrupted and she walks out to go speak to the troops so to speak and he has a moment of like, oh, way to go, pal, you know, just mm-hmm. put your stick your foot right in your mouth again, kind of thing. All of that lays the groundwork that we need 
for the stakes in their relationship. And it does it very, very efficiently. And you mentioned the Hans Gruber character. You, you mentioned Rickman's performance. There's a number of things that establish his personality as well. He's riding up in the elevator with the with the boss and he says, nice suit, right? He recognizes the, the, mm -hmm. English, the London tailor who made a suit. I have two of them myself. Rumor is that's where Arafat gets his, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is walking into the room before he demands the codes the guy doesn't know, and he kills him. So, I mean, I remember when I first watched it, the fact that he actually shot the guy in the head was shocking to me. It was absolutely shocking because Alan Rickman's performance makes him so likable. Like he's Yeah, he's so charming. Heel and witty and wry. Uh, and then when you realize, oh, he's willing to kill all these people it feels like a real betrayal. And that's really great directing right there. Yeah. That's really terrific. You know, we, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, Hans Gruber is a character we love to hate. Mm -hmm. That's a coup. Those are the yeah. most fun characters to play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, I was thinking that all through this, just how charming and likable he is. Yeah. You know, and at the same time, and you know, almost you're, it's almost like you're almost rooting for him in a way, you know. Uh, and that's oh, and, and even what was that? I'm sorry. I was going to say when they crack, there's a theme of uh, Beethoven's "Ode to Joy" comes up in the soundtrack a couple of times, and when he's humming it to himself, at one point, there's a very elaborate. Um, vault in the basement of the building and that has supposedly seven layers of whatever and the seventh layer needs to be there's nothing they can do about it but the part of the plan is to get the feds to cut all the power to the building excuse me so that seventh layer of security goes down and that's what happens and then the door rolls open and you get this sort of shot where they've got a Somehow, I guess the air in the vault is a different pressure because there's like yeah. a machine blowing his hair. Yeah. It is lit as though the gates of heaven are open and we hear Beethoven's ode to joy. Dun, 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 mm. dun, 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 right? Yeah. Which I don't... Is ode to joy a Christmas song? Is it it's a always a... Uh, it's always associated with Christmas. I don't. I, I guess. I don't know. But it's I often in Christmas, yeah, you know, entertainment. Um, so I don't know. But a, another thing I've, that kind of struck me a bit about this is there's a fine line between this and a heist movie, because you know they open up the vault and they find all these. There's and and that was one thing that I thought was a little bit interesting. There's paintings in there and statues and things. Do corporations just have? You know, do they not keep this like stuff in maybe a bank or something? Do they do corporations have a vault where they keep their rare artifacts? That seems silly to me. Yeah. Too. Like, but so this is a place that is very much about look how successful we are. Mm -hmm. And the design is extremely tasteful and beautiful. And I'm like, if you had a Monet or a Degas, you would hang it. You would display it. You would. Why do you just have it just it as, as an just investment a, and put it down in a vault yeah. on its side? Like that's just 
that's just some set designer was like, oh, loot. We'll have, you know, a Ming vase. And, a, you know, I'm like, these things would be, if you bought expensive art, you would display it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this scene plays exactly the same way as they open up a vault in a heist movie. And heist movies have always been interesting to me because you are rooting, you know, heist movies are always, Good. you're on the side of the thieves, yeah. but they're good guy thieves. Yeah. Whereas this movie is bad guy thieves, you know? Well, I think that is part of it. I think that's part of the success of this film is it lets you root for the bad guys too, because other than the fly in the ointments, the cops and the feds are such, you know, annoying, idiotic, incompetent, irritating, uh, you know what I mean? And they, they're going to, they, they say they're bringing in helicopters. The feds are like, we'll bring the helicopters to evacuate the people. They're gunships. Yeah. So they don't have any intention of, you know, they're going to, they're going in hot. And they're continually the, you know, you have like the, the, a lot of the, the terrorists are not all that well fleshed out, but, but you have the, uh, um, uh, you have the hacker guy and we know he's smart cause he's a hacker and he's, and he's really cocky and he's a wise and, that's yeah, like, he's a wise ass, but you like him, you know, even though he's the bad guy. And, it, you know, it's just like they are so much smarter than what the authorities are. And, you know, it's just the one guy who bucks the system who can who who outsmarts them. Yeah. Um, which is a lot of fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that I think that's one of the successes of the movies. They get they they get to have it both ways a little bit. Mm -hmm. because you get the fun of a heist movie and all of the different things they do to outsmart the security and the fail saves. Um, but you also get the good guy winning in the end and stuff. Right. Guys. So um, I, I do, I, I think that is a big part of what makes this whole thing entertaining is it's not only fun when you're watching the hero. It's also fun when you're watching the bad guys and it, yeah. it doesn't stick with Bruce Willis the whole time. No. It goes back and forth between he and he and Gruber. So you get it is kind of two two heroes, two kind of two co-leads, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we get a wonderful, fun little scene where the two meet. And uh I remember this from when I first saw it. Uh Alan Rickman does an American accent. And acts scared of Bruce Willis, and Bruce mm -hmm. Willis says, "Okay, buddy." You know, asks him a couple of questions, and then gives him a gun, and says, "Okay, well, you know, you're on you're on my team now." And of course, Hans, oh, he says, "What's your name?" And Hans says, "Bill Clay." Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis glances; they're at a place where there's actually a floor directory, and there is a Clay William. Yeah, right. And you think, did he see that, or did he just get really lucky, or how did he? Right, yeah. we didn't see him clocking that sign, and he gives him the gun. We're like, "No, don't give him the gun!" But he's one step ahead because there's no bullets in it. Yeah. So Hans reveals himself by aiming the gun at him and speaking German into the thing. He's like, "Now oh, you think I'm an idiot, Hans?" <laughs> so much fun that scene, and but it's then great. They, then they know who they are, and after that, he he lifts up the thing and he realizes that Bonnie Bedelia is his wife. And it's a great. Uh, you know, I was uh, like I was talking about before. This movie has some great scenes of suspense. It's a really great suspenseful scene because even if you've seen it, I I had forgotten about that scene. But you know, you know, Bruce Willis is he's not going to kill Bruce Willis, but you're still 
Yeah. Oh, you know what happened? You know what's going to happen? Yeah. It's it's great. The, the other is like when they when they shoot the glass, right? He there's this sort of he's in the computer thing and computer room. There's all these glass walls and he's barefoot and Gruber knows this, so he says yeah. to the he says to his henchman who presumably is German or speaks German, he says right. in German, shoot the glass. And the guy goes, huh? Shoot the glass. He clarifies in English. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For us, you know, but the even, even those little things that on paper, you're like, well, we need to, you know, it's, it's clever exposition. Uh, I think they handle it a fun way, you know, and I think they, they deliver that kind of thing. Oh yeah. As and I've always thought the glass, that's one of the all-time iconic things with him, you know, picking the glass out of his feet. And this is one of these things that I'm a broken record on, but one one of the reasons why this movie is such a high watermark to me and so many modern action movies are bothersome to me is that he is a... Bruce Willis is a human being and not a superhero. Right. Um, and most of the things in the film, it's plausible that somebody with some training, you know, and who's smart, you know, he's clearly very smart, uh, could do some of these things. You know, the one big crazy thing is when he ties the the fire hose around his waist and, you know, jumps off the building and, you know, you probably would die, but you also feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's possible. I don't know, but, but it's not. They keep, it, they keep it feeling human though, because he, so he ties the fire hose and it has, it's on a big, heavy reel, a big, heavy wheel, metal wheel that wraps is attached to it. Yeah. So, he ties it around himself and he, he jumps out and he swings down and the thing comes, it's heavy and it's, it's heavy enough that it catches and it holds him for the time he needs to shoot the window below and get into that. But then the thing falls and there's this frantic moment where he realizes it's going to pull me right back out if I don't untie myself. Before and that's great. It's so great. Yeah. It's a little bit like Indiana Jones finally making it to the plane and there's a snake in the plane. It's like, ah, right. It feels a lot like, you know, it's, it's very similar to that. And, and we had it in the eighties, you know, we had Arnold and, and Stallone who were often superheroes more or less, but this is very much in, in, you know, Bruce Willis in this film and, and, you know, a couple of the other ones until they turn cartoonish as well you know, Bruce Willis and Harrison Ford were kind of similar as the everyman who, even though these crazy things are happening, you still feel like, oh, this is a real guy and not Superman or Captain America or what have you. It, it, they're imperfect. So then when they do the impossible, it reads as true heroism. Yeah. When an average person against all odds decides to try and do the right thing and succeeds. And then you think, wow, that's amazing. Because when a person is perfect, what are the stakes? Of course, of course they're going to do the right thing. There was never any doubt because they're perfect and that's their whole character. That's one of the problems that's always existed with Superman as a character is how, when a guy is, you know, it's in, he's invincible. How do you make that interesting? Agree. What do you, what do you do with that? Why are you 
right? It's like you could literally kill all of us. Like, and mm-hmm. you just, you never have any fun. You never see Superman like <laughs> back having a good time. No, he's always, there's always good deeds to do. Just like he's the invulnerable Boy Scout. And you're like, yeah. It's yeah. just not interesting. Batman is a much more interesting character. Spider-Man is a much more interesting character. Spider-Man's a kid that suddenly gets all these amazing powers. And I mean, they cover it right out of his origin story. You know, he with great power comes great responsibility. It's a tough lesson to learn as a kid in high school. And Batman is a vigilante, right? But he's mm-hmm. And he's super rich, but the trauma there that drives this crazy bat thing, you're just like, (laughs) that's the one thing I think that that reboot really did right was how weird it made Batman seem, right? I mean, Joker just was like a serial killer and the Penguin was just a mobster, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like the villains were plausible as villains but who's this guy that walks around dressed like a bat and the cops hated him yeah because they're like why is this guy here like what we should arrest him right now we know he has broken the law Mm -hmm. and i think uh that made it a difficult batman movie to love because you're supposed to love batman uh, but I love that movie for everything but Batman. Like, I, to me, it was just like, yeah, Batman's weird. Like, Batman's this really seer, uh, weird, traumatized, sad, lonely character mm-hmm. that is doing this. It's almost a cry for help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyway, we got yeah, he's as crazy as the, as the villains in some ways. Um, so one thing that we haven't talked about yet that for this i don't think this existed when we were kids but somewhere along the way in the internet era it became a big debate about die hard is die hard a christmas movie well i mean you know define define christmas movie it is a christmas movie in the sense that it's set on christmas eve and uh, they've got Run DMC playing Christmas, Christmas and all. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's in LA, so it doesn't feel, you know, New England Christmassy like Krampus, which feels very Martha Stewart, you know, mm-hmm. New England snowy Christmas. Um, and I, I guess I would just say for, for my money, yeah, this is a Christmas movie. They set it on Christmas Eve. That was the intent. I mean, it's not a Christmas Christmas movie like It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. It's not Miracle on 42nd Street. I mean, if that's what you think a Christmas movie is, it's about the magic of Christmas. There's none of that. No, this is not. This is an action movie set on Christmas. But, you know, this comes up in my suggestions of stuff like at Christmas time. It's like, oh, you might feel like it's the kind of movie I feel like watching around this time of year. I, yeah, because that's the way they that's the way they crafted it. What do you think? Uh, honestly, watching it this time, it's it's more of a Christmas movie than I even thought it was because there's you know, the the beginning of the film was him on a plane. As soon as the plane lands, have a wonderful Christmas. You know, you hear this recording over, and then Christmas. You know, do you have any Christmas music? He says to the the kid in the in the limo, and he plays Christmas in the Hollis. And then there's Christmas decorations in the building, and then throughout the, there's Christmas music throughout the film and it ends with a christmas song 
So like you said, it, it depends on how you define Christmas, uh, a, a Christmas movie. Do you have to have snow? Well, obviously, obviously in LA, there is no snow there and people right. celebrate Christmas. We grew up in West Virginia. You're going to be home for Christmas. We almost never have snow here at Christmas time. We have snow later. Usually right. snow, usually Christmas, it rains. It is just gray here. So yeah, I I don't really understand where this, this controversy ever came from. Like you said, no, it is not, you know, uh, John McClane doesn't triumph because he discovered the spirit of Christmas in this film. So there's not that. But, you know, other than there being no snow, I don't know how it's not a Christmas movie. Yeah, I, it's just it's a semantic argument, sounds like to me. This is so, not yes it is no it's not yes <laughs> yeah it's so a... we so once and for all we have defined chris <laughs> chris talk movies say this is a christmas movie i think we saw controversy it. over yeah the con- internet will stop talking about it now yeah i don't i think it's a silly because i don't i don't remember when we were kids anybody saying that's not a christmas movie it's you know it's just i don't know um, so we didn't even talk about the, the coworker, the coked up coworker who like, is just uh, talk about a character you love to hate this guy. Yeah. Uh, he's, and a, that guy does a great, perf- that's a great oh performance. My God. Yeah. He's just a dumpster fire. He's just doing, saying all the wrong things and sucks up to Hans Gruber and, and literally says, he's like, you know, that guy throwing a, throwing a wrench and, uh, all the works here. I can give them to you. <laughs> and he ends up getting killed because he doesn't he doesn't have any understanding of who he's dealing with, right? And him getting killed is as satisfying as the bad guys getting killed. Oh, you yeah. know? But I think that's one of the fun things about this movie. It plays with who do you who are the bad guys? Like who do you like? Who do you not like? Who do you want to see get killed? And that's kind of messed up, but mm-hmm. You're sort of happy to see that guy get killed. I mean, yeah. I think this movie is very effective in getting you to buy into the cinematic cinematic experience of this is an action movie. Some people are going to die. They're not real people. This is a movie, right? But there are some of these characters that I will be happy to see, you know, get what's coming to them. Um, Because obviously that's not, easy to do and it's serious stuff watching people get killed is serious stuff but it is the stuff of action movies i think the worst of them is just boring and you're like why am i you know kill and kill again there's a lot of fighting in that and i didn't care about any of it um whereas the violence here although it is definitely uh movie violence uh it feels like there are stakes you know, you you care who the casualties are one way or the other. And when the bad guy dies at the end, that I think they managed to make that feel extremely satisfying in this film. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it feels pat. But they do this, this sort of shot of him as the her watch comes off, right? She gets a company watch that's a rolex and that's the thing that comes off Hans gruber has a hold of the expensive work thing that she has so i mean there is 
they don't hit it. They don't even touch on it. But there's some Christmas stuff. Like it's not about the stuff. It's about the people in your life. It's about the relationship and what you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Um, it shows that. It doesn't tell it. They don't talk about it. But, you know, and I think with the thing in the glass, there's a kind of a Christ imagery there, too. There's a kind of a crucifixion image. It's a kind of stigmata as he pulls these big, wicked pieces. Yeah, well, I never thought about that, but yeah, that's, that's But I think with this movie, you have to look for that symbolism. They mm. do not hit it over the head, but I think there's a lot of it going on there. He drags himself in into the room, trailing blood, which is certainly not the most graphic thing even we've discussed in this podcast. But it's extremely effective in this film. Um, and he pulls the thing that's like the size of a big nail. He pulls this big shard of glass out of his foot. And then he has a a kind of a come to Jesus talk with the guy down in the street, right? I mean... Then he has a kind of a breakthrough. I, I I haven't written a thesis on this movie and I haven't read other people's, you know, breakdowns of this movie, but I think they must be out there. I think oh, I'm sure, yeah. People yeah. could really take apart some of the symbolism in this movie. Oh, yeah. And, well, and to circle back around to what you were talking about at the beginning with the gun violence, you know, films are are and you know, we've had, I mean, the films have been violent since the beginning of film. Uh, and, you know, we, we, the first well, movie is a train, like yeah. a train coming at the audience, right? The yeah. audience scattered because they were so terrified. It seemed like a train was going to hit them. But, you know, I think even in the silent era, you know, they did gangster movies and, and, and that kind of thing. So we've always had violent films and we, you know, we grew up with a lot of violent, movies and TV shows and all of that. And there's been, you know, uh, so much written and, and said about that. But it's interesting that, you know, when we're in an era when there is all this gun violence and we see it on TV and it's so abhorrent, what it's, we get satisfaction from violence in films. And like you're saying, you know, you're rooting. There would not be a scenario in real life where any sane person would be like, well, you know, I'm rooting for this person to die or I'm not rooting for this person. You know what I mean? Whereas we, uh, you know, that I don't know if it's something primal in us or if it's a, a release that, okay, you can see this make-believe violence and then you are you know, not, you know, it's always painted the other way that right. you see all this violence and then it's going to make you, right. you know, you go out and, and be violent. But, you know, is this a release for people that you can see this violence and, but it's all pretend. Yeah. I mean, I think the catharsis is real. I'm surprised that maybe sex on screen does not work in the same way. I don't know enough about the big picture there to comment on that. But I do think regarding like, just to get political for a second, the good guy with a gun, I don't have any problem with a, a good person with a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who respects the weapon is trained to use it. And when things go South, you hope somebody is there and capable and prepared to stop a bad actor who is armed. Right. Mm -hmm. But 
those aren't the people that I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the people who are trained to use weapons and have respect for weapons, right? I'm trained for, I'm worried about everybody else who just has easy access to weapons and watches movies like this, whether they're mentally unwell or whatever. And they fancy themselves to be one, a character in one of these things. Now, that's not to say that I think these violent movies cause violence. Mm -hmm. I think they, they give a vision to it, right? You brought up going postal. I think that, you know, if a person does something horrible like that in their workplace, it's because they've gotten very unhappy in their workplace. And so I think the problem is not so much that they watched a movie in which this happened and that made them do it, but circumstances in their life have gotten to the point where they are feeling, they feel desperate enough to do something absolutely horrible like this. And movies like this are cathartic, but they also, they make it real visually. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a cause. I don't think it's a cause and effect relationship. But like we talk about in 1988, some of these movies we watched, that never crossed my mind when I was a kid. Because that's just what it always was, right? That yeah. was Every single movie reinforced the same thing. Dirty Harry, we're rooting. Dirty Harry's a vigilante, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And what was the other one? The Death Wish. You know, he's a vigilante, and we're rooting for that guy. And those movies haven't gone away. But that does get to some real deep part of ourselves that yearns for justice and a righting of perceived wrongs. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, and it glorifies it. So, mm -hmm. again, I do not think that is the cause. I think that it puts a face on a very deep seated urge and yearning that all of us have to a degree. Most of us have to a degree. And, and unfortunately, I think some people might be very close to And it just gives it. You see it on screen, and then there's some part of your brain that's like, so that's possible. And you're like, whoa, 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 it's a movie. But Well, know, and you watch the movie. You're the psychology guy. You watch the movie, and you think, okay, you know, even you, again, I think maybe even just on a primal level, you think, well, if I'm in that scenario, I want to be John McClane. I don't want to be the coked up guy, because that guy's a weasel. And like not a real man, you know what I mean? Because he goes in and tries to sell John McClane out. So even though you rationally think, okay, if I were in this scenario, the terrorist would kill me and then that's it. But still you, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you, you don't want to, and this gets into a difference between, you know, how men and women are portrayed and how we're raised and all that, but you still you even though on a rational level you think none of this stuff probably is possible but also you think well i would want to be the the hero in that situation you know i wouldn't want to be like a wimp or what you know what i mean i would want to be but there's a number of things that he does in this movie whether they're physically realistic or not that i just don't think i'd be up to like he's yeah. in the yeah 
and yeah. he sort of jumps across the other side and sort of manages to grab a hold. Oh, you just fall in the elevator and die. I mean, you know, it's like, I'm saying I just there's so much of this stuff that you can be like it's kind of cartoon physics because it's an action movie, but just the from the character's perspective of like, oh, I gotta do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I can do it. <laughs> and how? And I was thinking like you know, and this is suspension of disbelief, you know, nitpicky stuff. But I was thinking. You know, how did he know to stop the elevator and take the thing and push the thing up? And then right. He's just a cop. I mean, is he? What experience does he have with elevators? You know, right. elevator maintenance and stuff. Right, you but know? you're you're not supposed to think about it that hard. Right, right. You're supposed yeah. to be like, huh? Hey, smart guy. I've been around the block a couple of times. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I suppose if I was ever in an elevator and I wanted to jam it, I'd be like, hey, "Does anybody have a flathead screwdriver that I can?" Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you learn how to do this? Die hard. (laughs) (laughs) And he jams the rifle in the thing and has the strap that he's climbing. Yeah. That's so great how the strap is starting to kind of come under his weight. It's starting. They keep and they milk it a little bit. I'm like, that's really good filmmaking. Yeah. You really are inching out to the edge of your seat as that happens. Just, it's just a super entertaining movie. So, I mean, would you i would recommend it unreservedly absolutely i'm and i'm sure you know i always you know i I feel like i say this every time we watch something from the 80s um younger audiences who have seen a million other action films you know the john wick movies or fast and the furious or whatever would they be thrilled by this i don't know um i I, I don't know how if you told me that this movie was made in 1998 instead of 1988, I would have believed you. And the only thing that might have changed that for me was the computers. There's a couple of computer mm-hmm. things. Like, it was like, what floor am I going to? Just, just type it in there. And there's a touch screen, right? And he looks at it like, what the hell is this? It's like, I ah, know it's full of bugs. I just want to computerize everything. And they, they take the CEO up there and he's like, you know, if you want the computer, you know, there's fail safes. He's like, we are not interested in your computer, right? You know, there's just, he's like, they don't want the computers. They want the bonds that are worth the money, right? Of course, Mm -hmm. now everything's digitized. It's all about the computer. It's all about access. It's you have to get access to the computer. It's not even bonds anymore. It's intellectual property. Like I want to, hack the system so that I can find all the people's personal information, that database of everybody's, what they've been doing, you've been collecting. That's where the money is, right? That's what's worth something. So that's, to me, the one thing in 88 that felt really dated about this was what what has happened with computers. But for the rest of the film, I think this feels way ahead of its time. And yeah. I felt like in 88, it felt way ahead of its time, too. I'm like, what? There's, what am I watching here? This is so great. That made me think of another little a little touch there. Uh, when he first goes, when Bruce Willis first goes into the building, there's a directory and it's a touch screen. Yeah. And he's, you know, it was sort of one of these, oh, what do they think? You know, computers, what do they think of next or whatever kind of thing? Again, presenting him as he's this no-nonsense old school guy. Give me a gun and a lighter and there's nothing I cannot do. Yeah. And that was, and that was almost a little bit funny to me because uh, again, I mean, at the time I'm sure seeing this, it was like, wow, a touch screen, you know, cause I was thinking like, 
did we have touch screens in 1988? I don't know. But, but you know, that, like I say, at the time would have been presented as, wow, this is a super futuristic, you know, a mega corporation. They have all this money super that they can do this company, kind of stuff. Right, you know? yeah. But that's just one of those kind of funny little touches. But, but yeah, I, I, for especially, you know, younger people that have not seen this movie, it's just an example of gr really great filmmaking. And I think it would be a bit like us as kids watching Hitchcock movies. You know, they were made before we were alive, but still, I mean, I remember being riveted by Hitchcock, you know, as a kid. It's great um, filmmaking. Yeah. So, and this is, you know, along those lines where it's just, I would say this would work on people that have seen, um, you know, tons of action, newer action stuff. And also you're going to see, oh, that's where that came from, you know, right. because this has been ripped off so many times. So many times. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth a watch. I think Die Hard, certainly for our generation and the generations uh, in the last, I guess, 88, 40 oh, years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and seminal, it's a seminal action movie. And with that holiday thing, a lot of people watch it around Christmas, you know, Thanksgiving, yeah. and Christmas time. So it's become, you know, kind of one of those staples. So yeah, highest possible recommendation to me. It's a little nostalgia trip with the kind of big shoulder pads and big hair and, you know, but that's it, about it. I mean, but it's a super entertaining movie and the performances are terrific. Performance yeah. is terrific. It's a super entertaining movie. Great yeah. popcorn movie. Suitable. I mean, I'd say, you know, I don't know what kind of parents you are, but is it rated PG-13 or R? No, it's an R. There's a lot of... There's a lot he of... Uses the, there's a lot of F-bombs. There's a little bit of nudity. Um, Very little bit of nudity. Yeah. Um, it's titillating. It's not uh, salacious in that way. Uh, the violence is a little shocking. I mean, depending mm -hmm. on how you're going to parent, you know... But if you have older kids, if your kids are in their, you know, if your kid can drive, I'm like, they can handle this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they yeah. play video games that are more violent than this. Yeah, this is not a, as violent as, you know, the, the, the especially the, the glass in the feet scene is very visceral, but it, it's not super gory. Yeah, yeah. It, kids it have seen feels visceral, but it's yeah. actually quite. You know, you don't, it's not like Cronenberg uh, where you would see the glass coming out of the foot. He pulls it out, but the the trick is hidden. Yeah. So um, you feel it, you're watching it, you go, oh, but it's not because you're watching some surgical, right? I mean, there are some filmmakers that really want to build a prosthetic foot and stick a giant piece of glass in it and watch it, yeah. twist it around a little bit and show raw nerves, you know. But I would say most kind of, you know, like, well, you know, Game of Thrones and that kind of stuff is a lot more yeah. graphically violent than violent than this, you know. Yes, so. and it's emotionally violent because there's some real cruelty in some of this. Yeah. And that's part of what they're trying to show. But I've I always felt like that stuff left more of a mark on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Watching a character with intent take delight in hurting another person was always very upsetting to me more than yeah. the hurting of it, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. Anyway, we're, we're running a little bit long here. Uh, Chris, okay. Chris Doc movies at gmail.com is our handle. We're on all the socials. 
uh, like and subscribe. That's wonderful. Thank you for listening, watching. If you're watching on YouTube, um, what do you what do you want to do for next time? Uh, one that we had talked about, which is on HBO Max uh, right now, is "Don't Worry, Darling." The um, uh, I've forgotten all the people who are involved with it, but it's a kind of uh, uh, like a Stepford Wives kind of a thing. Yeah, great. Let's do that. Okay. That's a new one, folks, and we do spoil it. So, uh, but but since we're going to be in town together uh, next month, let's think about doing another one where we can actually we can record as we watch. Because okay. I think, I think sitting side by side while we're screening the thing would be really fun, and maybe I'll indulge myself and get potted as well okay yeah maybe we'll do that one as a maybe that could be a surprise one we'll just come up with something fun and and uh because last year we was it last year that we watched house was that at christmas time that we did that yeah the japanese one yeah so yeah let's come up with something we'll come up with something fun but yeah for next week we will do don't worry darling which is on hbo max if you have hbo max wonderful so check that out and join us uh next time when we talk about don't worry darling and don't worry darling <laughs> uh, and unless you have anything else to add my friend no i think that's it and chris and i we will talk to you all next week <laughs>